So is there an age where you're too old to trick or treat? I don't think so. I'm, I'm one of those people that um, if the uh, parents are dressed up, I'll give them a beer. <laughs> That's their trick or treat prize. Oh, I need to come trick or treating at your house. <laughs> Welcome to episode 28 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Craft Beer Cellar is a craft beer bottle shop whose primary focus has always been the best beer that they can get their hands on. They search for beers made in breweries just down the street or on the other side of the world that are well-crafted and good examples. Of. Are, are good examples of what excellent beer should be. Visit craftbeercellar.com for a location near you. That was craftbeercellar.com. You can win free free beer from Craft Beer Cellar by joining our conversation. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pub Theology and use hashtag PT Live. You can follow us on Facebook. Um, you can comment at facebook.com, Pub Theology, and you can comment now for your chance to win free beer we'll announce september's winners next week um and you win that by uh just commenting in um whether it's witty or or funny you know we it's pretty much up to our discretion if if we like your comment you could win free beer so watch live tuesdays at 9 p.m at pubtheology.com or listen anytime on soundcloud stitcher or itunes Absolutely. Absolutely. Well done. I was missing a word there in that uh, read for you. So that, that that's on me. You think I could have improv that though? <laughs> well, tonight we'll talk about the power of questions. What role do questions play in your spiritual journey? How do questions help you go beneath the surface? How do they help you uncover deeper truths? Is there such a thing as too many questions? In other words, we'll ask lots of questions about questions. And we may even get into some John Wesley along the way. Well, we've got a great episode for you tonight. My name is Brian Burkoff, and I am a pastor and author of the book Pub Theology. And I am in Holland, Michigan. And tonight I am drinking a Ballast Point Sculpin IPA. So getting some hops going tonight. And... Uh, with us, as usual, is Tina, and we have a guest as well who I'll introduce uh, after Tina tells us what she's up to tonight. Welcome, Tina. Hey, how's it going? Um, it's good to be back because I, I feel like I missed all of September because two episodes I have technical issues and two episodes I uh, I couldn't make it because I had classes. Um, this is Sassy Sidekick Tina, and um, I'm drinking tonight. It's called Trefethin. I said it correctly earlier. It's Trefethin. It is an amazing wine from Napa Valley. It's a 2012 cab. And uh, yeah, I'm totally in love with this wine right now. So that's next time I go to Napa, I'm headed to Trefethin. There you go. There you go. Well, it's great to have you back on air with us. And I'm excited to introduce friend and guest host, Jack Rusciuto. 
Jack is a prolific author, an organizational consultant, and Jack is someone who always makes the conversation better. So welcome, Jack. Oh, thank you, Brian, Tina. It's a pleasure. Jack, that's Great. quite a compliment. He does not say that about me or Ogan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ogan, you know, he's um, he's not overrated, but he's, he, he, you know, he lives at such a high level. <laughs> fair enough fair enough uh, so i think you might be uh, in transit or in between things jack so i'm not sure if you have a beverage or maybe if you even should have a beverage i i am uh being transited uh from a workshop we just did in cleveland back to uh, my homestead now if i was in wyoming i could uh, be drinking beer the entire way because it's legal to do that i believe still uh, but I'm not sure Ohio, I'm not drinking and driving right now. So, but I am, I do have a delicious uh, Cabernet waiting for me at home in a few minutes. Good to hear. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Well, be safe as you, as you go and maybe some inspiration, unexpected inspiration will cross your path during our conversation. Oh yeah. So our um, initial Kickoff question. It is October. And so the question is, when is the right time to put out the Halloween decorations? Assuming that's something you do. And if you don't do that, you know, you could hear about that. Um, you're not asking me, are you? Because I'm the one who had a skeleton like two weeks ago and you guys were scolding me because it wasn't even October yet. <laughs> who is sitting right <laughs> next to me right now? <laughs> oh, there it is. Those we had a house. People. We had a housewarming this weekend, and so I dressed her up for the party. Well done. Well done. So never too early, according to yeah. Tina. Halloween's my favorite. There we go. Well, it's a good month. Good month then. How about you, Jack? I, um, I'm real, I, I religiously never uh, celebrate Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a kid's holiday, except in my neighborhood... Um, I think we have a drunken Santa mer uh, uh, like fundraiser running. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure if drunken Santas come out on Halloween or whether they wait for Christmas. Yeah, I thought it was a little later for that, but yeah, that's that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, they wear pink leotards and, and uh, spend all day long being drunk. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Um, just a, uh, just a celebrating the true meaning of Christmas. I think. I thought that only happened in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have immigrants here. Okay. Come on. It's America. There we go. There we go. Just a quick, uh, technical note, Jack, you're a little soft on the volume. So if there's any way okay. to either, uh, hold your mic a little closer or just speak just a yeah. skosh ladder, that would be excellent. Okay. Um, so for us, as far as Halloween de uh, decorations, I think the farthest we've really gone is uh, carving pumpkins and putting lights in them. And I think maybe maybe we had pumpkin lights one year, but we haven't done a lot of uh, we don't hang skeletons from the trees or put spider webs out uh, or create haunted a haunted front yard or backyard, but. I do enjoy that others do that, and so I vicariously enjoy others who go all in on Halloween. Do you take your kids trick-or-treating? We do. We do. Uh, my kids are 
of an age yet where that's uh, big happenings and they love to get out and uh, let's see, what have we done? Pirates, ladybugs, uh, butterflies, ghosts, stuff like that. Any uh, members of Congress or nothing political? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should have done that when we were in D.C., you know, just dress up as a, uh, as a congressperson. That would be good. That would be good. Well done. Well done. So is there an age where you're too old to trick or treat? I don't think so. I'm, I'm one of those people that um, if the uh, parents are dressed up, I'll give them a beer. <laughs> That's their trick-or-treat prize. Oh, I need to come trick-or-treating at your house. <laughs> I like wow. that. I like that. I mean, it. you know, I have the excuse of taking the kids out so I can still get out. But once the kids are out of the house, uh, I don't know. It'll take a little extra nudge for me to get out there and do it myself. I might have to hang up my my costume at that point. Well, that's where you wear a costume and just hand candy out when kids come by. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. I just like dressing up. (laughs) Have you bought any Halloween candy yet? Not yet. Big bag of something? Not yet. That's good. I'm a last minute person. (laughs) Well, I just mean, I don't mean to hand out. I just mean like to enjoy yourself. I'm trying to watch that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we don't need any reasons to have excess, I suppose. That'll happen soon enough. Exactly. Well, uh, our friend Jack uh, has written a number of books. And as I understand it, he is currently working on a book on questions. And so I want us to take some time discussing the power and the role of questions. And um, Jack, maybe you could just give us uh, a brief thought about what you're thinking about with the book or why this topic seemed of interest to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, in the last couple of years, what I've noticed is that when people, uh, so we work with organizations and leaders and when people, instead of making statements of desire, desired outcomes like goals and out, you know, goals and objectives and mission statements and that kind of thing, um, when people frame it as a question, it has way more power, far more power than when they make it as a statement. Because what happens in our uh, what happens in our brain when I say to you, you know, I want to. Um, I want, I think it's a good idea, Brian, if you like franchise pub theology all over the world, the first thing your brain does is it starts to think of why I might be wrong, right? It starts to think, (laughs) right, 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 right. I don't know. I mean, you know what? I just took on three things and I've got this going on and I don't even know how to franchise. It sounds kind of capitalistic and I'm not that way anyway. And right. Um, but when we frame it as a question and we, and we frame it as a, you know, as a good question, like what would it look like if people were doing this all over the world, right? In Europe and Asia and, and, uh, um, and uh, India and so on, uh, what would it look like? How could that be possible? What would that do? Hmm. Imagination lights up and, you become inspired, you become engaged in the process of inquiry, in the process of curiosity. So instead of being defensive and, and, and concerned, you become curious. 
And so questions have a power. So part of the book is an exploration of, of how questions have power. The book is called Way of Questions. And how we can use questions to go from being stuck in our life to being more vibrant. Great. I love it. I love it. It's, it's in the what ifs. It's in the questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and getting the questions right. I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that when we're stuck or frustrated or afraid, we're literally asking ourselves the wrong questions. All the mm-hmm. political consternation today are, are what I would argue is mostly the wrong questions. Ooh, Jack, let's go there. What questions do you think we should be asking? Well, um, so instead of what do we do with the, with the immigrants or, or what can we do to the immigrants uh, in, in the U.S., and immigration is going to grow in the next 20 years around the world in an exponential way for uh, not just climate and politics. But, but wouldn't it be a more beautiful question to ask is, is who are the immigrants in our community, right, in Holland or in Cleveland or wherever, and what gifts do they bring? And how can we engage them? And how can we give them, their children, the kind of life we had dreamed for our children or have dreamed for our children? Yeah, it can help us. A good question can help us reframe it. Uh, and I like that. So it, both in both your earlier example, thinking about, you know, expanding a personal um, goal or things you're working on or thinking about this uh, policy question around immigrants, a question reduces the threat level, maybe the anxiety level a little bit and opens up a what if and helps possibilities come to light that maybe have some promise rather than only viewing it as this is negative or fear-driven or threat. Right. Yeah. And, um, I, and I love, I love the way you put that, Jack, because, um, it's, it's not, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with them? It's, wow, there's people coming in that are different than we are. They're, going to be part of our community. How can we utilize their gifts to make us a better community? I love that. I think that's how everybody should be viewing it. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're, we're raised to, um, we're raised to think that the questions that are given to us by the people in authority in our lives are actually worthy questions of answers or even consideration. And for, and for, to, to a great degree, they're not, you know, um, a lot of the political questions around immigration or women, you know, what do we do with women in the workplace? What kind of question is that? I'm sorry. There's got to be better questions. Yeah. Um, and, and one of them for me is why does Harvard keep saying that women raise the IQ of, of groups of men when they walk in the room? Why, why is that? And, and how can we harness that power if in fact it's true? So it's these simple shifts into more beautiful questions. Mm, I like that. Yeah. I want to read your book now. Yeah, I can't wait to read it myself. My God. (laughs) (laughs) Because that'll mean it's been written. (laughs) (laughs) So I found this uh, quote uh, provocative that you posted um, to social media recently. And uh, 
by the way, if you like to hear um, wisdom quotes regularly, I'd recommend following Jack on Twitter. Um, I believe it's at Jack Rusciuto. Is that correct? We'll assume that's correct. Uh, I think Jack's on mute for the moment. But this quote that you posted recently was, our deepest truths are not declarations. They are questions. Could you say a little more about that? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, hold on one second, Brian, I'm sorry. No worries. He's driving. Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Um, so, um, this is part of what I'm playing with is the idea that, uh, our deepest motivations are not our beliefs, but are the questions behind our beliefs. And if we want to change our life, we have to change our questions. Um, and, and changing beliefs to me is, uh, it's not necessarily, um, possible or sustainable. It's really hard to even get yourself to change your own beliefs. Right. And, and we, you know, and there's a lot of wise people who, who have wisely said that, you know, if you want to understand a person, you have to understand their beliefs, uh, which is true. But I think it's missing the point because I think what's underneath beliefs are questions. And if we can identify the questions that are really driving our lives, then it gives us a chance to more explicitly and consciously live by, right, and experiment with better questions. Why is it always me is the question be, uh, behind the belief that uh, life sucks and, uh, and, you know, very few people are looking out for my good. And so what I'm suggesting is, is you know, instead of fighting with people about their irrational beliefs or whatever, their dysfunctional beliefs, it's getting into the question, it's changing the question from why is this always happening to me to the question of what do I have to contribute to the world? I mean, there's lots of questions, but that's one of them. What do I have to contribute to the world that would make a difference? Or what would a great day look like? Or how could I engage my strengths better? Mm. Right. Or I, how can I bring out the best in people? I mean, my God, there's like a, a hundred good questions, every sucky question that we could think of and live from. You know, Jack, you have a really good point. I love uh, John Gordon. And he says that, um, you know, you can't be positive and negative at the same time. So if, you know, if you phrase, it's the exact same question, but if you just phrase it, in a positive manner, your mind goes off in a completely different direction. You go off in a creative direction instead of a, yeah. a destructive direction. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, I like that, uh, thinking about, you know, while we understand someone by looking at their beliefs, but as you know, those beliefs are in place as answers to certain questions and so right. dig, digging behind those beliefs Right. To that place of question, I think, is, is very helpful. And so just to pick one theological claim, the idea that uh, God is sovereign or God is in total control of everything that happens in the world and in my life. Right. That's a certain belief that people hold. And I think some right. of the question is, why did this happen to me or what's going to happen tomorrow or um 
what purpose does my life have? So I think there's a number of questions that a belief like that is attempting to answer and provide a satisfactory answer so that you can continue living your life in the midst of those tensions. Yeah, that is, uh, that's, that's exactly what I'm starting to realize is that, um, is getting down below the surface of belief where, um, where things, it's just not, it's just not tenable. I mean, and you're, and I'm not saying our beliefs are, are always rigid and, and, uh, non-plastic, uh, beliefs evolve, right? That we, yeah. we, we, you know, for the people, I was raised Catholic before, you know, um, before I came, became Buddhist in my late twenties, which or my late teens rather, which was, you know, a hundred years ago. But, you know, I, I was <laughs> the nuns, you know, the nuns had us, you know, believing that, that, uh, you know, that we had to pray to a pretty, un- pretty conditional God, not an unconditional, there was no unconditional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and there's, I have a lot of friends who, over time have have uh, uh, moved from a fear theology to a more of a love theology, so their beliefs have changed. But I want to argue here that that what shifted, right? What shifted? Like what shifted? What shifted, I believe, was that they started to entertain different questions. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so for the people that haven't changed, Jack, do you like the people that are, are very rigid in their beliefs? Um, do you think they're they're not allowed to ask questions? Do you think they're just afraid to ask questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really important point. You know, is that is that we're we're raised literally. We are all raised. Most well, almost all of us are raised. Uh, to have answers and not questions, right? Yeah. So, you know, my idea of a good school system is like when, when Brian's kids, you know, graduated in eighth grade, uh, they're asked, what questions are you leaving with that you didn't have in first grade? I'm going to grade you on your questions. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and uh, do you have better questions? Because that's all that matters. I mean, your phone has got all the, your phone has all the knowledge in the world in it. Okay. So just like keep the damn thing charged. You think you could do that? <laughs> no. I mean, it's, it's not a big thing to ask. It's, you know, plug it in once in a while. Um, so, so there, you know, there's your knowledge. There's your education. Congratulations. Here's your degree. You have a degree in battery management. Okay. Basically that's all it takes anymore. Um, but I, but I, we are, people are very afraid of, uh, they're, because we're, we're raised, a lot of us are raised that to, to, to have questions different than the questions your authority figure had is to show disrespect. Hmm. When, when our, when our mothers, you know, said to us, uh, in a, you know, summer afternoon, why did you kids do such stupid things today? No one said, that's really not a good question. <laughs> but but in, in your theory, Jack, had she phrased it differently and been like, "Wow, what made you decide to do that?" You might have been, you know, you might have felt okay telling her. I there's a lot better questions, but we weren't. To your point, we were not. Uh, we did not feel welcome or invited mm. to uh, to question the questions and to say, you know what, those are 
you know, what's two plus two? It's like, you know what? Um, I think there are better questions in the world than what's two plus two. And I think we should talk about those first. We were. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I think questions can both uh, open us to new possibilities, but they can also feel like a threat to us Mm -hmm. because maybe we feel that we've answered certain things and we don't want to open that back up to uncertainty or Mm -hmm. mystery or the unknown. And so I think there is something um, of human nature that sometimes may resist questions. Even if they'll be good for us in the long run, we might just resist them because we we're scared of what we don't know. Well, and we're not trained, Brian. We're not, we, don't, we don't have literacy around uh, uh, even crafting more beautiful or better questions. We literally don't have literacy around that, you know. And it's it's yeah. uh, it's an art form that I that um, yeah. that I think we have to get. I mean, we don't get it in school, but we have to start. You know, you're certainly in a position as, as a leader in your your community to help people. Uh, literally move to better questions. Good questions, I, I would say, good questions always cause us to, um, I really believe good questions cause us to feel vibrant. Mm. It causes us to feel alive and curious, uh, eager to discover and explore, uh, um, tending toward dialogue rather than monologue or, or debate. Um, I think bad questions do the opposite, you know. Um, they make us feel shame, guilt, anger, uh, impatience, frustration, you know. Right. Yeah. Hey, Brian, can I, do you mind if I go completely off script for a second? Because I just thought of something that I just want to ask Jack. Sure, go ahead. Um, so I want to talk about a specific group of people that a a lot of generations have a habit of putting down and that's the millennials, um, that, you know, they, I feel like they're a group that, um, they're a generation that really, they pose a lot of questions that really challenge our society. And I think because of it, they get called lazy, they get put down, they get called entitled, but I really think they're just sitting back and going, wait a second. Is, is yeah. this really what's going on here? You know, I, I, I just think they're questioning things that we don't want questioned. Yeah, those damn millennials, man, I'll tell you. Exactly. Uh, How often do you hear that? <laughs> so give me an example, uh, Tina, of a, um, give me an example of, uh, of a millennial question. Okay. So like the millennials are like, um, they're kind of the generation that is, is posed with the whole, they don't want, it, it, theoretically, it's said that they don't want to work for their money, but they're coming out like they were taught that they're supposed to get these four-year educations or six-year educations, and they were going to come out and get these great jobs, and they're coming out, and these jobs aren't available, and they're going, I'm, I'm not going to work at McDonald's. That's not what I'm trained to do. And I'm not okay with it. Um, what, what better things do you have for me? Right. You know, like I don't, I'm not okay working nine to five. I want to enjoy my life instead of working at a job that I hate. So what else do you have for me? You know, I feel like they're just asking what else there is. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. That's a great example. And, um, um, you know, and, and, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, they're, they're, 
parents' generation, which is my generation, mm. and, the, and the one before us, my parents' generation, um, we didn't, we did not have that question, you know, of what else you got. <laughs> right. You know, our question was, um, when can I go to the bathroom or something? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. It's the very narrow field of permitted questions. When, when are breaks? Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, I think that, I think that, um, I think, I mean, you know, in, in kind of in defense of that, that whole position, I think that millennials, I don't, I think that anybody who's raising questions that are new, that people are unprepared for feel like unwelcome questions. You know, what gifts do the immigrant immigrants bring can be, I know communities where that would not be a welcome question. It would be a threatening question. Yep. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't feel like a beautiful question. The beautiful question is, is, uh, are the, are the walls high enough? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I was going to ask you because you noted that good questions, um, inspire, they uh, engage us, they open us to new possibilities. And yet, I think you're exactly right that it kind of depends on the person and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. It could be either personality, it could be life situation, it could be, you know, their income level, um, whether they're a minority or whether they've lived under, you know, systemic oppression or, you know, it could be a number of things that -hmm. cause one person to respond to a question as, wow, that's a beautiful question. And that makes me wonder and, and you know, want to discover more. Mm-hmm. And let's just say a certain theological question will do that for me. And if I ask that to an older generation in the tradition that I was raised mm-hmm. in, they will feel that question as inappropriate or a, th- a threat. And they'll say, mm-hmm. next, please. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, I, it's an interesting thing to think about context and who's asking that question. And then maybe the question is, how do people who are coming at these questions differently interface in a way that can lead to them both asking good questions together? Yeah. 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 And that's, that's what I'm suggesting is that when we bring to people together in teams or in organizations or in communities, <laughs> in networks that we're asking them, what should be the questions that we're living and living by, living through, living with, living from, uh, rather than asking people what they think the needs are. You know, that's the whole. Mm. So I'm, I'm saying that. I'm saying that, to, to, that we made a lot of communities have made the some communities I should say have made the transition from deficit-based uh, to asset-based community perspective. And I'm saying, yes. let's go one step further and make it inquiry-based or question-based. Is what should be the questions that uh, would bring more quality and value uh, to people? The big challenge is getting people, um, giving people an, an, an opportunity to experience a sense of love that they haven't experienced before mm-hmm. relative to really anybody. Mm. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it's I think it's it's an art to ask the right question, but also know the context. And I think we can certainly do that uh, 
best for ourselves, perhaps. But I think, as you know, when we're doing it in a communal setting, maybe someone else can help me ask a better question than I'm capable of asking on my own. So I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are excited. Yeah, on, on Twitter, John has jumped into the conversation and says that asking good questions has kept me from literalism and helped me to be more open-minded. Go, John. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. I that. Thanks, thanks, John, for tuning in. I think that's great. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering uh, about, we have a, a quote here, um, or an approach, I should say, toward truth from John Wesley. So perhaps our Methodist or Wesleyan listeners will be familiar with this. And he believed that we come to an understanding of faith or truth through four different paths. And those four paths all complement each other. And those four paths are scripture, tradition, personal experience, and reason. So scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And I guess the question to both of you is, where do you think questions might fit? Or or would that be a fifth thing in his little system there? You know, at first I was thinking it would be a fifth thing, but I think it needs to be an element of every single one of them. Ooh, well done. I uh, I like that. How would you say more about that? How would it? How would you see that an element? Well, it, let's take scripture first. Um, and you know, Brian obviously knows way more about it than I do. But um, I've, I've listened to people talk about scripture my entire life. I've read the Bible um, as a child and then as an adult, and. Um, first of all, reading as a child and, as, and an adult are two totally different things. But then I've been through many different faiths who read the scripture differently. So when you read a certain passage, I think it's really important to question the time it was written, the, the, you know, the era it was written in, um, the context it was written in. You know, I, I think there's a lot of questions that go along with it. Um, what does it mean to you today? What does it mean in today's society? You know, I just, I think there's a lot of questions. Like, I, I don't think scripture is as static as some people make it to believe, make it out to be. Sorry. Yeah, I think I think you hit, uh, hit it on the head there in terms of how do questions interface with that approach. And I think exactly what you said has helped me come to new understandings of scripture, and that is asking good questions. You know, I think many of us who are raised in a certain religious tradition, whether Catholic, you know, Protestant, or even some other um, religious, world religious tradition, we're sort of handed a way of seeing the world and handed a certain lens and um, certain understandings and teachings. And I think in any tradition, asking questions helps you probe deeper than the status quo. It helps you go beneath, as John on Twitter said, beneath a surface level reading of a text. So he said questions helped him move beyond literalism. So you read, you know, the world was created in seven, seven days. Does that mean seven 24 hour literal days? Does that mean that all of humanity fell into a mess because two people ate a piece, a piece of fruit? You know, I mean, many people have that understanding of that text, right? A very surface level reading. And I think asking the questions you mentioned, Tina, what was the context? What was the audience? What does this say in the original language? What have other people said about this text? All those help us probe and go deeper. 
<clears throat> I, I totally agree, Tina. I think that I think that um, need to be a heuristic in the. I can't believe I just used that word. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, but I, you know what? Hey, it's pub theology, so yeah, bring it. That's you know, right. I know. I I actually know what, how to use that word. Um, but I think questions can be can be an important heuristic, and I'll continue. Questions need to be an important heuristic in the epistemology, right? That yeah. that has to occur when we're when you when we're using any written document as a guide for our life. Um, I had a, a situation uh, recently, uh, just in, in the context of questions, and uh, the question was raised in a conversation, in, in a beer conversation. Uh, and we did have one Lutheran in the in the uh, in the conversation, uh, referring mine. And the question came up: the Gnostics are right, and that there was literally no historical Jesus. Uh, and uh, hmm. and people were, you know, fairly because there's this whole Gnostic tradition around that. So um, apparently, allegedly, yeah. you know, yeah, rumor, <laughs> yeah, theological rumor has it, <laughs> and. Um, and I was like, okay, that's really a bad question. And I said, I, I, uh, the question I want to raise is, is if you found out, this is a classic, this is a classic Brian question, uh, pub theology question. And it's a question of, if you found out you had evidence tomorrow morning, you had cold evidence that there was no historical Jesus, Right, that it was a metaphor made up by the church fathers when they were smoking, you know, a hole with something. Um, uh, if that was true, would your life change? And how would it, as a Christian, how would your life change? And would it change if you found out there was no historical? And that that is a much more beautiful question than like, you know, did he really live? Like mm. you can like really do anything about that question seriously. Yeah, yeah, it goes that Jack. That goes from your head. That goes from your head to your heart. That to Mm -hmm. me, that question goes from your head to your heart. So, have you asked? Like, you've really talked to people about that, and what have they said? Well, you have people who are. um, You have people both ways. You have people uh, get very anxious and say, uh, "Yeah, I would. I would have to question my faith." And and, in in total misunderstanding of the question because it's Mm -hmm. too new for them. Yeah, and I say no. Would your would you change your the way you do virtue or the way you do whatever you know kindness? And, yeah, yeah. You might stop praying for a while, you know, and wake up, you know, Mother Teresa, where you know you're in this dark night for eighty years. Yeah, you might add extra cheese to your omelets. I mean, any any number <laughs> of things might happen. That's right. There's nothing better than baby cheeses on omelets. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, I think that I think that's fascinating, and I think a question like that, you're exactly right. It could be, and certainly some would receive it as a total threat. Like, mm. hey, what are you saying? And that's not an appropriate question. Or, or, or of course, he existed. But I think if you allow that question to sit and mm. sift through you, it might uncover certain things and certain motivations, certain fears, and a number of yeah. things could come to light. About well, yeah. what is what is my faith based on, and what is driving me to act as a loving, compassionate person, mm-hmm. and 
what if this really was the case? And I really found that out. Like if you can't even ask mm-hmm. that question. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but I know some just, people. Are, yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> but if, but if we ask people, you know, if we ask the people who are afraid of the question, what, what, what gives you pause with that question? They would probably say, um, it's really disturbing to think of, of my character, uh, separate from, um, Jesus as my inspiration. So I would say, all right, what the hell? Okay, well, let's go with it. So mm-hmm. what would Jesus do if he lived with your mother-in-law? I mean, literally, like, like this, is a, this is a classic kind of a Jesuit retreat question, by the way. Nice. Um, I mean, they're not, they don't really ask it this way, but it's kind of that genre of uh, what would Jesus do with your mother-in-law? And it's like, I don't know. Well, you need to figure it out because like you're, you know, you're really close and and he's your inspiration. So you need to do something with that. But it's all about changing the questions just just to provoke, you know, and excite and tease people into a space literally that they're unprepared for, but it's going to stretch them into a greater heart space. Hmm. You know what? It, it, it's it, when you were talking about that, Jack. It made me think. Um, so, okay, Jesus never existed. It's been proven. Mm-hmm. Although, you know what? Even if it was proven, it cold hard facts, people would still believe it. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking. Oh, I know. But, but if it was absolutely a hundred percent proven, what if Jesus is just the best part of you? That part of you would yeah. still exist. Yeah, but mm-hmm. no one. Ta- but who? Who talks about, you know, who talks about their, their, um, I mean, it's not really common conversation mm-hmm. to talk about your own divine spirit. Okay. Because we right. externalize it, you yes. know, in our adolescent view of, uh, it, it is changing, which is good. Yeah. yeah and I, I think you're right. I think we kind of, uh, in a lot of, um, traditions particularly christian traditions jesus holds a unique place he's um he's uniquely divine second person of the trinity and all of that and we kind of by doing that we kind of lower ourselves to a place well you know i'm i'm just who i am and you know there's nothing divine about me or nothing special about me um and yet jesus himself uh says to his followers that you will do greater things than i did uh you know, and so there's there's also a strain within Christianity that sees Jesus as a sort of forerunner or a model of what a, a divinely inspired life looks like that we all ought to aspire to live. Mm-hmm. But that's a quieter strain. Yeah, well, um, when you have an externalized, this is the issue, is it, when you have an externalized version of salvation, you can't at the same time believe that the kingdom of God is actually within you. Ooh. Yeah. Which, which is, that's a kind of paradox, isn't it? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. When salvation is outside of you, you don't have space for the kingdom of God to be within you. Mm. No, no. I mean, just like you were saying, Tina, earlier, you can't have positive and negative at the same time, right? There, there are, you know, there are complementary opposites, but these are kind of, uh, these are, you know, these are non-negotiable kind of, uh, 
Yeah, mutually exclusive. Mutually exclusive. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah. Where it's hard to have, it's hard to have both. And but I just, you know, it just goes back to uh, the how much how much amazing fun we could have putting together what what are potentially better questions. And that I think I think part of the art is is to come up questions that don't threaten. Um, uh, don't threaten, and I really feel very important, strongly about this, is yeah. that good questions don't threaten people's belief system. It opens them up in a way that they're, they become defenseless to their own opening. Mm. Oh, I like that. That's a great phrasing of it, and I think, I think that's a beautiful way to um, approach this whole idea of questions, and that's why I'm looking forward to your book, which you're calling the way of questions. And I think you're right. Questions can be used in a very negative way, just like hard statements of belief can be used very negatively. And so there's almost a sort of a wisdom approach of questions when you're approaching people. How do, how do you draw out of them what's, what's already beneath the surface and, mm-hmm. and as you would say, it open them up to the more of their lives that, is is available but they're not aware of yeah yeah Mm -hmm. but that's not easy to do well it's new for us it's a new it's a new level of consciousness for us um the whole thing about raising new questions but i believe that our future our collective future does not depend on new beliefs i believe i believe it depends on new questions and i think that those of us who are capable of crafting those really need to start putting those together. Um, you know, what do we do with Trump and Hillary? Um, is is uh, I, I will I will tell you there are much better questions to be thinking about than those. Tell nice. me some of them. Tell me some nice. of them. We'll, we'll have you back on on our election night special. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, that would be. Wouldn't that, that be that awesome? Would, that would be fabulous. Well, you know what? It will be a Tuesday night. Yeah, and and uh, I actually asked my uh, my father this recently, and and uh, um, we have we have different. I'm transpartisan, and he's still partisan, uh, one way or the other. And we had this beautiful conversation. He just they did both of them just turned ninety. My parents, and. And he was in politics his whole adult life, so he's he's a very um, astute and and we had this like great conversation that I invited around the question of what would you do in the first hundred days, right? And or what would your advice? And the other question was what what's your advising? You're the top chief advisor to President Trump or President Hillary. Uh, what do you? And we just had this. Like magnificent. That is a much better question than like, what do we do with either of them? Mm. Seriously, as yeah. soon as people start getting stupid, you know there's a stupid question at the table. <laughs> oh man, I'm going to use that line uh, at Thanksgiving dinner this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness! Very you guys good. are great. You guys very are very good. Oh, this has been fun. This has been fun. Any. Uh, we're so, we started a little late, but that's all right. Uh, we're kind of approaching our hour here. I'm just wondering if there's any 
lingering questions or a final word of wisdom that either of you would like to leave us with? I have a really big question, but I have a feeling it's not going to be able to be answered on this um, in the next four minutes. Jack, in the beginning of this, you started by saying that you started out, you grew up Catholic and in your 20s, you went to Buddhism. And to me, that feels like swinging from one side of the pendulum to the other. I would Mm -hmm. love to hear that. Uh, How, like Mm -hmm. what possessed you to do that? And where did you settle? That's my question to you. Yeah. So in my late teens, I was exposed to, by my mentors and my spiritual directors, I was exposed to Christian mysticism and then Sufi, which is Islam mysticism and Kabbalah, which is uh, Jewish mysticism and so on. And, um, and, that just, you know, it just, you know, it's one of those things. It just resonated with me. And then and when I was 20, there's this, there's a saying in, in Buddhism that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I literally had one of my mentors call me in one day and say, you're ready. You're ready to practice Buddhism. And uh, I was 20 years old and that was 44 years ago. And I, I was absolutely, I was ready. Um, it was shocking because uh, my, my first uh, official Buddhist teacher, who was a 17th generation Zen Buddhist priest, uh, Koshinogui, um, he said, well, you know, it's going to be a little shocking to you because uh, there's no dogma, no God, no beliefs, no sin, and no guilt. And I'm like, Jesus, okay, I'm good. <laughs> Where do I sign I'm, up? I'm like, I got the pen. I got my pen out. I'm ready to go. I'll sign up. <clears throat> so um that you know so that was a true story but you know but the buddhists you know uh, really quick um in terms of like if if we had uh, concrete evidence that buddha never existed <laughs> it's such a it's like a buddhist joke what would buddhists say if they found out buddha didn't never existed historically <laughs> they're like okay it's like uh i i'm not changing anything are you uh, I don't is that like so. a is that like a buddhist koan yeah exactly yeah the well, buddhist, I- yeah <laughs> I've heard it say that Buddhism is more of a philosophy than a religion because they don't actually worship Buddha. It's they study no. him. No, there's um, Buddhism gets treated as in the world religions, like when you take world religions in the Western world, you, you, Buddhism is one of them. But it's total crap. It has nothing. There's no beliefs, no God, no rituals, no prayer. No, I mean, it's like nothing. Um, <clears throat> if you're a Tibetan Buddhist, if like the Dalai Lama you might believe in an afterlife and reincarnation and stuff like that. But the Buddha, when right. asked about the afterlife, said, um, bad question, not answering it. So that was his response. And that was smart because um, he, had, he had yeah. probably had more questions than answers. <laughs> well, it was smart because of the fact that Buddhism is really only one thing, and it's the practice of presence. Mm. Love it. You don't have to be Buddhist to do it. Uh, but you can you can answer it through Buddhism. But there's nothing, there's literally nothing else to Buddhism than the practice of presence. And the practice of presence leads to two things. It leads to wisdom and compassion, nothing else to it. So it's like stupidly simple. And, you know, it's not for everybody. Mm. Well, I, I love that. And I have to say my own uh, spiritual path uh, is moving along those lines, though I still frame it in a uh, Christian context, and mm-hmm. certainly Christian mysticism and the contemplative tradition within Christianity is very meaningful to me, but I've also been very nourished by uh, a number of Buddhist writers. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. 
I, I affirm what you're saying. Absolutely. And you get down to all the um, Henri Nguyen uh, was a, a great inspiration for me in my 20s. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, I read every word that Thomas Merton ever wrote in his life, who, who became Buddhist at the end of his, uh, his Trappist monk life. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's really, there's a lot of Zen teachers that say you can't, even to say you're a Buddhist is like, you know, whatever, because you're, you're present. And that's it. That's, that's all there is to it. It's not, it's, it's, it's atheological. It's not non-theological or anti-theological. Right. Right. I love it. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap us up with something you said earlier, Jack, you said our deepest motivations are not our beliefs, but the motivation behind our beliefs. And that is what questions help us uncover. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, thanks friends for tuning in to pub theology live. Please connect and spread the word on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and uh, occasionally on Instagram. And you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Please check us out. Leave us a review on iTunes, maybe extra credit. And also leave a comment uh, on one of our social media feeds to the conversation we had tonight using the hashtag PTLive. And you will possibly win free beer from our sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. And if you'd like to find a conversation like this near you, check out pubtheology.com for the official Pub Theology Directory. And again, thanks to our sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar, and thanks to our guest, Jack, and to Tina. It's nice to meet you, Jack. Great meeting you, Tina. Fabulous. Well, Thank you so much. We'll have you back soon again, and that's a wrap for tonight. We are out. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> when you listen nice. to the podcast later, there'll be music happening right now. Oh, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> That's cool. Thanks, Jack. I, I, I'm really looking forward to your book. Is he still here? Did he leave us? Uh-oh. Hopefully he's still on the road. You didn't, you didn't tell Jack about the after show, did you? <laughs> no, exactly. He's like, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. We, right. I think uh, if if you're listening to the after show, Jack was a guest with us, I believe, on episode 10. So if you go back in the logs of uh, Pub Theology Live, you'll find a prior episode with Jack. And who knows, maybe he'll catch us down the road. I think so. I think we should have him back home when he publishes his book or for the political episode. Yeah, exactly. And I think we, need, as you said, we need to have him on when Ogan's on because Jack and Ogan also know each other. So that could be fun. 
Yeah, and there were a que- there were a couple times tonight that Jack would say something, and I'm like, oh, Okim would have so commented on that. <laughs> I know, I know, I know exactly, so, exactly. All that all to right. say, we, we miss you, Ogan, but I think we had fun and a fantastic episode in your absence. Yep, and uh, I'm headed out to look at a car, so I'm going to go. All right, have a great night. We'll catch you, you soon. Too. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.